everybody. Welcome to episode 189 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas. Today, I've got a fascinating interview conversation with Lisa Tomati. She is an ultra endurance athlete who hails from New Zealand. And so I connected to her from the other side of the world. She has run over 140 ultras in her life and has raced as a result over 40,000 miles. I'm not talking about training miles. I'm talking about racing miles. She's finished the Badwater Ultra Marathon twice through Death Valley from Death Valley to Mount Whitney. And, and as a part of that, she was the first New Zealand female to actually get that race done. She has done expedition-style races across the Sahara and as, as well across the Himalayas and is just an all-around badass. I'm having her on the show to talk not only about her experience in the world of ultra running and what that can do for your mindset and what she has learned for mindset as a part of her journeys and adventures, but also her recent book just came out called Relentless is about her four-year journey to help her mother rehab from a brain aneurysm and the lessons that she brought from her ultra-endurance world to that fight to get her mother back to full health and 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 the ability to operate again on her own after having a pretty severe brain injury. And doctors really left her or said that she wouldn't actually be able to operate normally again. But Lisa refused that prognosis and journey back with her mother to the fact where now her mom can operate normally and can drive and has very few artifacts from that brain injury. So we'll talk about that story with Lisa and I think you'll be fascinated by the conversation as she has lots of good nuggets. But first have to talk about the news of last week which is that as expected Berlin and the New York City Marathon officially canceled their races other races have started to follow suit. Chicago and London have yet have not yet made that decision, but we assume that that is coming. And I saw today that the tunnel marathons, which were some smaller races out in Washington State that people expected may happen, I, I saw that those would be canceled through the end of 2020. And so now we're also starting to see some of those smaller races get canceled. And so I just wanted to comment on that briefly say a couple of things. One, this was obviously expected. And if you listened to my episode last week, then it means you've already thought about the fact that you needed a backup plan as well as, as well as to start thinking about how to make a pivot perhaps to something else. And today I wanted to reiterate that point, but also mention a couple of other things as you think about what you might pivot to. I think that the likelihood of big city races happening in this year are pretty low. And so if you pivot, again, I would pivot to something that might be small and local, potentially a trail race, something that, you know, has a high likelihood of happening. And then know, of course, that maybe that itself won't happen either. And so you might want to be thinking about some virtual things, some virtual races that you could get excited about as a way to pivot or maybe another challenge to go face, whether it be to run a certain distance, run a route that you've wanted to, to tackle for a while, perhaps do your own virtual 5K in a certain PR time. You know, there are other things that we can get excited about. And so that's something you want to start thinking about. Now, I would say 
as I've mentioned before in this podcast, don't make any rash decisions. So if you just lost New York and you were holding on hope for that, then I would give yourself a couple of weeks to digest that experience and that reality before you make any big decisions. So give yourself some time. And then secondly, once you give yourself some time, then I would think about two fundamental questions when you're deciding what you might pivot to. Because again, any training that you do right now, even with the uncertainty of races, is going to benefit you in the long term. But you got to stay motivated to go do it. So when you're thinking about those options, think about two questions. One, what are your weaknesses? What do you need to work on? And this may be an opportunity to work on that. And it could mean working on speed, could be working on the shorter stuff, could be working on endurance, could be working on the longer stuff, could be perhaps incorporating strength into your program in a way that's more sustainable than you have in the past. There are all all sorts of options there. So first question, what are your weaknesses? What do you need to work on? Second question, what's going to be fun and exciting for you? And in my opinion right now, given the uncertainty that we face, the second question trumps all. And you really have to gravitate to and lean towards those things that are going to be fun for you, that are going to be exciting for you. And if you're not excited about what you might have on the table, then you got to find something else. Because at this point, with all of the uncertainty that we face, unless you're enjoying what you're doing, unless you're finding something that's fun as an alternative to that fall marathon that you wanted to do, it's not going to be sustainable. You're not going to have those reasons to, to get up and and go out there and get the work done. So think about what's going to be fun for you. And again, that can come in a lot of forms. Maybe mixing it up and doing some virtual 5Ks would be fun. I know there are some 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 distance and mileage challenges going around. We've got one in Texas where you can run around the equivalent of the state of Texas. I know Tennessee had one where you could run across Tennessee and there are other similar ones that might be fun for you to go just bank a lot of miles and and see yourself accomplish a goal like that. Could be something else. It could be about going to do a certain trail distance and finding a trail where you can do that perhaps on your own and self-supported. And maybe for you, it's about building up to that type of a journey. There's lots of things if we can be creative that we can go do. But that question number one is, what's going to be fun and exciting for you? And so I would answer that perhaps first. Let that trump all. Secondly, answer the first question I mentioned, which is, what are my weaknesses and how can I incorporate some work to work on my weaknesses into that journey so that I come out on the other side stronger and more ready to tackle whatever goal might have been put on hold because of this pandemic. So those are some additional things to think about as you think about what's coming and as you deal with the uncertainty that lays ahead. Hopefully that helps you, but I promise you, you got to find that thing that's going to be exciting for you. The work that you do between now and whenever we can race again, if you can be consistent, is going to be so critical to long-term success. And you just got to find that magic formula for you that's going to keep you getting out there, that's going to keep you doing work, that's going to stay, that keep you consistent so that you can stay ready for what's to come. So that's my quick soapbox moment on dealing with some of the uncertainty as these races continue to be canceled. And so I will stop there, leave that as my intro, and we'll turn it over to my conversation with Lisa. So let's welcome Lisa Tomati to the show. How are you doing today, Lisa? 
Oh, fantastic in beautiful New Zealand. It's midwinter here, so um, a little bit chilly, but a beautiful day here as well. So, well, thanks for connecting with me. You're you're a full day ahead of me, which always blows my mind when I connect with people <laughs> from that side of the world. It's Tuesday here, Wednesday there, but uh, but excited to chat with you. Really appreciate Sanjay, one of my prior guests, connecting us. And your story is a fascinating one. I want to get to all the bits, but let's just start with how you got into running in the first place. What was your first exposure to it? Um, to, to be honest, I'm, I was a hopeless runner like at school and stuff. Like um, asthmatic, really severe asthmatic as a child. So in and out of hospital all the time. I don't have a great lung capacity. Um, so it wasn't a natural progression for me to really get into running. But I sort of grew up in a family that was that didn't mollycoddle me. It was like, okay, you got asthma, get you know, deal with it, learn to deal with it, and that was that was great, really, because you know you, you you treated it like, okay, it's just a part of who I am, and I've got to deal with it, you know. Um, so they didn't make any sort of special allowances. And I, I'm like, <laughs> the crazy thing is I've done all this crazy amount of running, you know, 25 years of, of ultra marathon running sort of thing, but I, I never had any talent, like not, not, not fast. I'm not, I'm no Killian Tournay or, or Scott Turek <laughs> or anything. Um, but just had a, a huge amount of, uh, passion and wanted to have adventures and really crazy places. And I did have a really good ability to be able to hang in there for the long haul. Um, and of course, that's what ultramarathoning is about. It's really about the top two inches more than it is, um, you know, how big your lungs are. That helps, of course, but, um, you know, it is, it is really like that. And so I actually came to running really, really late. I did a lot of, um, I spent five years sort of cycling around the world and trekking and climbing mountains and kayaking and doing all that sort of good stuff with a, a partner at the time. And um, I ended up doing a crossing of the Libyan desert as an expedition. It was a four person expedition and it was really on the edge of absolute crazy. So I was, I was used to doing long treks. We had sort of like 35 kilos, a military barred area, so highly illegal what we did. <laughs> a bit crazy. We only had two liters of water a day and 40 degree temperatures sort of thing during the day. And this desert nearly killed me literally and my relationship at the time also broke up in the middle of a desert. You know, you wow. can imagine temper's afraid and you've got no water and stress is high and all of that sort of stuff. And so that was a real low point in my life. And I survived that expedition and you have to read the book to get full details on that one. <laughs> um, but it took me a couple of years to recover um, physically and mentally uh, from the relationship and so on. And I did quite a lot of kidney damage and things like that. Uh, anyway, I was reading one day in a magazine about the Marathon de Sables, which is a famous race in Morocco, an ultra marathon over there. And this was a couple of years after. And, I was, and it was touted at that time as being the toughest race on earth. And I was reading the statistics and I was thinking, well, I'm not a runner, but I did that distance in the Libyan desert and I had 35 kilos on my back and I had two liters of water a day. Uh, maybe I could do this stuff, you know? <laughs> so a little thought was born and I ended up, okay, signing up for this race. So I'd never done a marathon or anything like that prior. Signed up to do the, the marathon, the Sables, and that was the beginning of the end, really. <laughs> I just <laughs> loved it. It was awesome. Um, incredible experience running seven days across the Sahara um, with, you know, with 700 old other runners. And it was just this exciting expedition type 
style thing and the people were amazing and I had all these positive amazing people around me which I wasn't used to and that was just fantastic and I realized actually I, I came in in the top 10 and uh and that was my first you know running uh okay I'm not fast but I, I you know when it comes to like running over seven days I know how to strategize and pace and all that sort of jazz and it worked out pretty well so then I was addicted so then <laughs> the other the bigger the scarier the better type thing so that's how I got start, started so yeah I want to go back a little bit though on your spirit of adventure where did that come from yeah, I, I mean, I grew up on a little um, farmlet and we were very outdoorsy kids. So very good Kiwi sort of lifestyle. We were at the beach all day. We were, you know, over on the neighbor's farm. We were, you know, we, we, were, we had this really outdoors sort of lifestyle. And so I was always into nature. I was into surfing, I was into doing all that sort of stuff. But I'd never left my country ever until I was 24. Um, so I didn't have that adventure gene as in, well, let's, you know, travel the world and, um, not until I'd actually been overseas the first time and realized that there's another world out there besides my own country, you know, that, and, uh, once I'd actually been to a couple of places, cause I was quite, I was quite a scaredy cat to be fair, you know, like my first time overseas, I was like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, um, and, but I, once I started to get more confidence and stuff and then I wanted to sort of push the boundaries and you know um in the, in those early years had that had that relationship with a guy who was very into extreme adventure so that exposed me to all of that sort of stuff um and that sort of set the picture for later on so yeah it didn't come from a really extreme background or anything but just a really good kiwi kid outdoorsy upbringing and what about the part of just being relentless. I mean, it's your, the name of your current book, but it seems yeah. like you've been a relentless human for a long time. I mean, especially <laughs> referencing that Libyan desert experience. Yeah, I think um, I was always very, very driven. I think, you know, like I study um, genetics and functional genomics now and epigenetics. And I have a whole uh, a couple of genes in there in the mix that just make me very bloody minded. So whenever I want something uh, come hell or high water, I'll make it happen if I really, really want it. And that is always the question. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us underestimate what we're actually capable of when we actually put our full mind to something and whether it's when you're all in. And so I was a very much an all in type of person. And um, I remember my mum saying when I was three years old, I would just run off, you know, and jump off into the swimming pool when I couldn't swim or you know I was always off climbing up a cliff and she'd have to keep her eyes in the back of her head because I just didn't have you know any idea I was just off on an adventure um, so I think it's a bit of a combination between genes and then also your upbringing so when you're brought up in a family where like my dad was huge expectations on us as kids so he expected us to represent our country, for example, in a sport and wanted us to be the best at school. And, you know, so there's a lot of pressure early on. So, and I always wanted to please my dad as little girls do, you know? So I, I very much spent my whole young years, I think, wanting to, to searching for that approval, you know, from dad and then later on relationships. And I think that also made me very, you know, I've got to be tougher, I've got to be stronger, I've got to be better. And so there was a lot of pressure in the mix as well as having a, a determined mindset. I, 
I also read that you had a back injury at 19 that was pretty significant that could have affected you for the rest of your life, but yeah. that's something you came through. So it seems like you had some formative experiences perhaps that also helped you show yourself that you could do it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so I broke my back and so I had two uh, vertebrae that were broken and two discs that were the squashed. Um, and at the time that it actually happened, I didn't even know that it was broken until weeks later. Um, so the spinal cord was still intact, but you know, a lot of lot of pain. And um, I've now got like four discs that are totally um, screwed, shall we say? <laughs> uh, and I've always been, you know, you have to get it fused. You're going to have to. And I was like, nah, that's not happening. And um, you know, when you when you're told at that sort of point you have to have surgery, you have to, you're not ever going to run again, all of these sorts of things. And what I've discovered in my journeys through life and with other medical problems and with my, my mum's journey, which we'll get into later, is they aren't always right, you know, and it isn't always the truth. And sometimes you can beat the odds. And sometimes if you spend the time researching and looking outside the box, and in my case with my back, um, a hell of a lot of rehab going into the core strength, you know, and this is something that I teach, you know, now is that if you've got a really strong core, then you're going to mitigate the chances that your back's going to get really bad. And if you keep your weight in a, in a good you know, don't get overweight. Um, if you keep inflammation down in the body, uh, all of these things can be a part of, of back injuries. So it's not always just the mechanical problem that you've got the, the bulging disc or the nerves being pressed on. That's part of the puzzle. But it's exacerbated when you've got inflammation in the body, when you don't have a strong core, because it's like a corset, you know, like our, our muscles all around our core are, 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 are a corset. So if they're really tight and strong, then it can help compensate for the problem in the back um, so that's something I teach in, you know in, in our coaching over here so yeah. um, very big on that you've had quite a lot of adventures in addition to the 140 plus ultra marathons that you've done you you mentioned the Libyan desert experience what was the hard, hardest part of that journey which sounds not only epic but also really dangerous and scary it was stupid to be fair, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> I was young, you know, yeah. and um, crazy, and yeah, it, it was it was brutally difficult. So I was not aware of really what I was getting into. To, to be fair, I was just following along blindly behind the boyfriend who was into doing extreme stuff, and um, we crossed the Arabian Desert the, the week before, and that had been fine because it was a, with a, a group and. Um, then we went and did the Libyan, but this was next level extreme. So it was 250 kilometers. And this area back then, this is back, you know, 20 something years ago, um, was uh, on the border between Libya and Egypt. So that area was a really dangerous, you know, wars and problems on that area. So it was a military area. People weren't allowed in. There were no maps per se of that desert. But the, the leader of the expedition, his name was Elvis, and that was his real name. Um, he, was a, he, he was a Yugoslavian survival expert. He'd been to this desert 20 years before, and it was the most incredible, beautiful place. And he'd always harbored this desire to actually cross the entire part of this desert, right? So he put this, this plan together, and he managed to get some uh, pilot maps of the area from the military. Don't ask I don't know, never did ask. But they only gave us a very high level view of what was actually in there. Um, 
So what looked to us like a tabletop mountain ended up being an up and down. <laughs> so that was interesting because it was constantly climbing up and down as well. And it was the most, but it was the most beautiful desert that you've ever, like I've been in a lot of deserts. I've run thousands of caves and deserts. And this, this was the most beautiful desert I've ever seen. Um, and it had a, a lot of variations from, you know, beautiful peak sand dunes to um, limestone formations and coral growing out of the ground and places like, like miniature little crystal mountains. Um, and then you'd have like these volcano type mounds with black, volcanic type rock on it i don't know what it was you know geologically but that's what it looked like uh so it was one of the most varied and most amazing deserts i've ever been in or the most um and when we did it, it was four of us the boyfriend at the time and i and two other guys elvis and gunter and we had to carry so we had no outside support and we had to carry everything on our backs. And I weighed about 59, 60 kilos at the time. So 35 kilos was pretty much, you know, on the limit of doable for, for me, especially yeah. with my back issues. Uh, so if I fell over, I could not get back up. The boys had to sort of put me on my feet and push me forward, you know. And we were covering sort of 45 kilo, kilometers a day. That's what we had to sort of cover. And when you've only got two liters of water, that's a recipe for disaster really and that's exactly yeah. what happened but we couldn't carry literally couldn't carry any more than that um so that's all we had and of course that's where the troubles began and the dehydration was horrific and then we came across you know sandstorms and we had to escape the military out of the place that we were leaving and getting back in um in the middle of the desert the the relationship broke up and he left me <laughs> to five-year relationship so wow. there was all this drama going on it's um I've actually got a producer at the moment who's interested in uh, a movie about it. <laughs> um, and, and it was, it, as crazy as it sounds, it was pretty, pretty out there. Um, but it, and this was the first really big scary thing that I'd done. And uh, I did end up with, you know, one kidney this, twice as big as the other one. And my central nervous system was starting to break down from the dehydration and, you know, lots and lots of problems, hallucinations and all those good things that you get during ultras as well. Um, so it was pretty much uh, on the, on the, you know, on the limits of, of endurance, especially for me. Um, and emotionally I had to learn when, when the breakup happened on day four, you know, I started to fall to pieces and then I realized you can't fall to pieces because you're in the middle of the desert and there's two other guys that are looking at you going, oh my God, we've got this hysterical woman now to look after and the <laughs> other guys bang it off. <laughs> and, you know, is he going to survive? You know, are we going to survive? Because it was getting pretty desperate at that time. Um, you know, and all this sort of drama. So you learn quite a lot of lessons out of that. You know, you learn, you just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You, you learn to control your emotions and to be able to compartmentalize things and to be able to function in a really high pressure situation and not completely lose the plot, you know? And, and what happens too when you're in a situation like that, of course you can't eat and you're, you know, your blood sugars are all over the show and you, 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 your brain isn't thinking right. So you learn to, it's, it's, it's almost a bit like being really drunk because you can't, and you see your decision-making ability is really impaired. You're not thinking logically. That type of thing is going on because your body is basically starting to shut down. So um, being able to function despite all that and keep moving forward somehow 
And that's a really good lesson for life, you know. <laughs> no matter how bleak it is, just keep your feet moving forward, you know. It can, it um, can never be as bad as the Libyan desert. Yeah. Well, so I thought until I did a couple of <laughs> other ones. But, oh, man. But, yeah, it was pretty but, out there. I mean, I, I do find it fascinating that that was not your expedition. It was not your yeah. idea. And yet you still had to get through it. So you didn't have that original motivation coming from within. It, yeah. I guess, was kind of thrust upon you. And then ultimately, maybe it just became about survival, which yep. then became very selfish. But, but talk about that part of it. I mean, how do you motivate yourself to get through, to get through some of these things? Yeah, so, so usually when I'm doing something big, it is my mission, you know. Um, so if I decide I'm, I'm going to have a crack at a big race or something, and then, then it is my mission. And, and as time wore on, I, I understood because I failed many times as well. I don't, you know, don't get me wrong. There were, there were lots of races where I went into it with the wrong preparation and I failed miserably. Um, because often in those times is when you didn't go all in, as I said before, going all in is a big part of my life's philosophy. So when you, when you're really taking on a big challenge, you have to understand your why you have to understand what is the reason you're doing this and, and where are you going to draw on the resources when the time, when the, you know, the proverbial hits the fan and the times are going to get tough. How are you going to get through that? So when you prepare your mind in that matter and you prepare for the battle ahead, then you're much more likely to succeed. You might still fail, no doubt, but if you go in with that attitude of preparation. So I'd, I'd always, now when I'm, when I'm working with athletes and stuff, I'm to, I'm, I want to know what their motivation is. I want to know what the reason is behind wanting to run that marathon or whatever it is. Or I want I want to get to that really deep emotional drivers because that is where your motivation lies and that's where you'll pull out all the stops and you'll be capable of far more than what you think you would be otherwise. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's a big part of what I talk about as a coach as well. If you don't know your purpose, then what's the point? Yep. And and you probably won't get there because you're not so connected to the goal. Absolutely, it's not as important as it needs to be. So how do you talk to people about finding that? Because it's one thing to say it, but I know I sometimes have athletes that struggle really putting a finer point on their why. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like peeling. I sort of think like it's peeling layers of an onion. You know, there's always the superficial why. Wow, I've always wanted to run a marathon, you know, on the ticket box. You know, like, that's not a reason. <laughs> that's not a reason. Um, and then you might dig a bit deeper. It's because, well, I really, I, I really want to lose weight. Okay, okay, what do you want to lose weight? Well, maybe this isn't the best way, you know, like we start talking about other options, you know. Or maybe it's because someone told me I was a useless runner and I want to prove them wrong. Well, now we're starting to get somewhere. You know, because now right. we're starting to get into the emotional territory. And even if it's a negative, you know, I want to prove something wrong, uh, somebody wrong, that's still a massive, powerful motivator. And it was certainly one of mine for many years. And that will help you overcome because, you know, or, or it could be a positive one. I want to be a role model for my children. I want them to see a strong, powerful mum. I want them to see a mum who can, you know, sets a goal and achieves it. So that's when we're starting to get to the real nitty gritty of why you're doing this. And when we can unpack that, and that's just a, a deeper conversation and the person going away and having a think about it and meditating on it and visualizing it and, and trying to 
get into the depths of, of what is it that's driving them. Because when they can find that, then you will find commitment. Then you will find that everything else, they will just do whatever you say. And if they can't find that, and you don't always find it, then you'll, you'll have, you know, like, um, you know, working with people, I work with people uh, with disabilities and uh, who are coming back from strokes, and we'll get into that story in a minute, but when they come to me for help, and if, if they are looking for the magic pill, then I know they don't have a show. If they are looking for the quick answer, what can you do for me? I cannot do anything for you. You have to understand <laughs> that I can give you the information. I can give you the resources. I can give you the training. I can give you the, the things you need, but it's you that has to be committed to this process. And when, they can't, when you can't find that, you, you won't get the rehabilitation. You won't get the wins. You won't get, because you, you have to fight. You know, it's everybody is in their own fight, whether it's for a, a sporting challenge, a rehabilitation goal, whatever it is, you have to understand where it's coming from and why you want it and how much are you prepared to pay for it, I think is the question. Yeah, I agreed. And some people struggle with that, not only finding the why, but also maybe because they can't find the why sticking with something. Yeah. What do you tell those that struggle with it? There are some, some people you, what, what I have learned as a coach and in health coach and so on is that you cannot save everybody and that there are some people who are not, not ready for what, what they're wanting to do on a, on a top level, but they're not willing to do. So you cannot force, you can leave a horse to water, but you can't make it drink type scenario. However, there are a lot of practices that we can implement to just start to create momentum because a lot of people are just like this is huge i don't know where to even start so okay well there we can help because there we can set into motion some techniques some some you know um framework around people so that they can actually start to make progress and once they get the bit between the teeth once they start to see some progress then the motivation can come and then they've had more time to think on things so for me it's about making simple small steps daily towards the big goal so yes you've got your big scary goal say it's run a marathon um okay well how are we going to break that back down into what am i doing in the next 24 hours that is going to get me there and keeping our focus in close when when people have not got that big answer yet as to why and to where they're going i you know it, it's 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 that almost that transactional management style. It's that, right, well, today I want you to do X, Y, and Z. You know, you're going to go off and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this. Okay, off you go. And if they go and do those small, simple steps, small, simple steps is an SSS, just think small, simple steps, then they will start to get that motion and that movement forwards. And then you can make that a little bit bigger and a little bit. And you can have these conversations as a coach on you know it's developing and once you're getting momentum you're starting to get a little bit ways toward your goal then you can turn around and see how far you come and then all of a sudden the motivation starts to come because you put in some effort now but if you focus on the big picture the big end goal you know whether it's someone who's uh, in a rehabilitation and they got you know the big goal is to walk again but at the moment they can't even pick up their spoon 
we're not going to be thinking about walking right now because we have to think about well, how first do I get your hand to do that and get it to your mouth, you know, and that's what we're focusing on. So it's breaking it down into small bite-sized pieces that people can cope with now because we, we can get very easily overwhelmed. And if you can keep those con consistent and persistent and keep your focus in when the times are tough and get some progress and then turn around and look how far you come. Yeah, the small wins. The small wins. I love that. I want to talk about your why for a second. You're the first Kiwi woman to finish the Badwater Ultra Marathon on a race across Death Valley to the top of Mount Whitney, 135 miles. Yep. You've done it, I think, twice. Twice, yep. Why did you do that? What's your why? <laughs> that's an epic, crazy race. Oh man, that's an epic race. I love that race. That that was uh, that was a game changer for me. So there was a couple of reasons and motivations. And once again, it comes that down to that wanting to prove. In this case, wanting to prove somebody wrong. So and the 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 young gentleman that was in the Libyan desert, right? Um, <laughs> you shall remain nameless. Um, he had cycled across Death Valley and, and in the middle of summer and he was always like going, you know, I cycled across Death Valley, you know, how I'm, you know, tough and cool and whatever. <laughs> and, I, and I was always, you know, told that I was useless and hopeless. He was always telling me that, that I was, had bad genes and I was never any good. I wasn't a hopeless runner. I was this, I was that and everything else. Okay. So I had years of this and okay that relationship went south thank god and you know <laughs> i move on but when i got into ultra marathon running and i heard about the badwater ultra marathon and i through death valley and i thought one day i'm going to do that when i get to that point in my career when i think that i can have a crack at death valley and do it that will be a moment for me just for me personally i was never going to see him again i was never going to do it but he'd cycled through the middle of summer so i was going to freaking run through it in the middle of summer <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I did, and I did it twice, you know, and, and it, for what, it was one of those just personal moments, the first time when you cross the finish line where you've like, and this was years later and I didn't see the guy and, you know, it didn't yeah. really matter anymore. But in my, in my own head and in my own heart, that was like, damn girl, you did it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. ran across it and it was amazing. <laughs> and I had an incredible crew and I had um, so much support from my hometown to get me there because it was hugely expensive to get there as well. So uh, it was one of those really special moments, especially that first year that I did it um, and, and it's really sort of changed my life. And I remember, you know, lining up to people well, like people like uh, David Goggins and Dean Canassis on the start <laughs> line and you're like, oh my God, you know, like just freaking <laughs> out, fangirling it badly. <laughs> but it was, it was pretty cool. So was that more about proving him wrong or somehow proving something to yourself? Yeah, it was, it was really, and on the inside, it's about proving something to yourself and achieving something you didn't ever think prior that you could ever do. And the self-confidence that I took away from that one particular event really changed the trajectory of my life because... I was going through a very bad time at the time. I'd just moved back from, uh, I'd been living in Austria for 13 years and um, I came back to New Zealand and I had gone through a marriage breakup with another 
guy um, and came back at the age of 38, basically, to New Zealand with nothing. I'd lost my business, my house, my husband, my country. And, and I had no, no self-esteem, again, back down on, on the, you know, mm. crash back down as, as, you know, life throws curveballs at you. So I was back in New Zealand. I was staying in mum and daddy's bedroom. I was nothing and nobody. And I, and I, and I finally got that acceptance letter into Badwater. And that was a light on my horizon that made me fight like crazy to get there. And my hometown like just really got in behind me getting there and supported me to, to raise the money to, 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 you know, mm. take a crew over and to do it. And that meant the world to me. I felt supported. I felt like I was on a mission. I was on a comeback journey and to actually achieve that and do that. And I made some really good friends from that, that whole project. Um, and then I got, you know, a couple of, um, uh, book contracts off the back of that and started doing documentaries and TV shows and speaking and all of those things and rebuilt my life, you know, it rebuilt my life and that was the catalyst for, for it. So, you know, it was a pretty special race that one. And that's all chronicled in running hot, right? Yep. Your, yep. your first book. That's right. Yeah. The, give us a little taste. I know, you know, not everybody knows bad water, but you're running through Death Valley. If I remember right, that race started in the middle of the day just to make it even more difficult. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 10 o'clock in the morning, actually. The temperatures, basically. <laughs> and so what's that like? How do you survive through the desert? Oh, that one was next level desert. I mean, I've done a lot in the Sahara by then, but that was just next level so yeah it started it or well, i started in the 10 o'clock wave 10 a.m uh, there was three waves back then it was 6 a.m 8 a.m and 10 a.m now they start in the night time but back then it was uh in the in yeah in the hottest part of the day and that that first oh the first well we, we think in kilometers over here the first 70 k's which is i think i don't know 50 volt 40 odd miles or something was just brutal <laughs> brutal hmm. and it, it was nice and flat for that part, but it was just intense heat. So you're, you're running on the white line, basically. You're trying to stay off the asphalt because the asphalt's black and you can literally fry an egg on it. I had a film crew with me who did exactly that. They fried an egg on the, on the, wow. on the road. Um, and the radiating heat off the, off the thing as well. So you're like, you're, your shins are just burnt from you know, the radiation of the heat, you, you, your shoes turn into concrete. Um, you're wearing, like I was wearing like these, the first year I went in these white pajama type things, you know, just to keep the, the sun sort of off your skin and, and so on. And you've got a crew in, these, in this race, you have a crew and they are working overtime to try and keep, you know, putting ice in your hands and trying to keep your cool around the neck and putting ice in the little pack around your neck and spraying you down and trying everything to keep your core temperature down so you can keep moving. Because of course, the higher your core temperature goes, the more likely you are to get heat stroke and, you know, and then you're going to crash and burn, you know? So it's all about managing your runner and keeping them. And so you're at a pace, you have to keep at a pace that is below the threshold of, you know, heat exhaustion and, and that's a real tight game of trying not to go too fast and, and and then you're faced with mountains. I mean you you've got two massive big passes that you have to get over on on route as well. And then at the very end you've got Mount Whitney, you know, where you're going up halfway up Mount Whitney to two and a half thousand meters or uh what's that about eight thousand feet or something. Um yeah. 
And so you've got all this combination. You've got extreme heat. You've got the distance of 135 miles. You've got up to 57 degrees Celsius. I think it's about 135, no, 125 Fahrenheit, something ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so all this, this combination of things. So it's about a management. It's like strategizing and keeping an eye on your vital signs and keeping an eye that you're, you're drinking and that you're, you're, you're still urinating, that you've got your electrolytes right. So it's it, you're very much dependent on having a really top-notch crew that race as well, which I had. Yeah. How do you train for something like that? What are the key pieces for you? For me, that one was particularly hard because I was coming from New Zealand's midwinter. So you're traveling right around the world. So you've got jet lag, right? You're going from, you know, uh, very, you know, low temperatures here to extreme temperatures over there. So I had to go over a good, uh, I think I went nine or 10 days earlier to just to acclimate. Uh, when I was training in New Zealand, I would be in the sauna every day training um, doing step ups in the sauna, just trying to get used to the to the heat. So there were some things that you could prepare for from a distance perspective. Back then, I was into doing much more higher mileage than I am as a coach now. Um, now I'm all about like a holistic run training sort of system. But um, so it was quite big mileage. I was doing you know 150, 200 k's a week. Um, you can tell me what that is in miles, but a fair amount. No, um, yeah, ninety to one ten. Yeah, yeah, miles. yeah, and and working full time as well, of course. Um, so that was pretty pretty intense. Um, and 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 it's with all ultras, you you sort of you're just trying to manage your body. You're trying to manage your body and your mind. Um, and that's we, we you know, and this is why the you have to do a certain amount of mileage because you have to teach your body. Um, you know how to cope with pain, how to how to run on exhausted legs, how to uh, teach your body to be metabolically efficient, and how to eat on the run, and how to drink on the run, and you know all of those sorts of parts of the puzzle. So it's really an experience game. At the end of the day, it's not it's not a heck of a lot to do with are you a great runner? You know, are you a talented <laughs> runner? You know, like you, you put me in a local ten k race, and I'm in the middle of the field if I'm lucky. You know, speed wise, just never had it. But this is all about. This is a different. This is a different game. It's just a di- completely different game. It's very much a mental and a management game. You know, man- how to manage your body. Yeah, and to pre- and prepare, right? I mean, I did my first ultra last summer, fifty mm-hmm. miles, and done, have done twenty marathons. But wow. it was my first ultra, and and you just learn that it's also about your preparation, your planning, your aid station, your nutrition, your hydration, yeah. all the other pieces that you have to dial in. And if you don't, you it can go sideways pretty quickly. Very quickly, and it, uh, yeah, and this is and this is where the experience side of things comes in. You can you know you can be the most talented athlete out there, but if you get your strategy wrong, if you don't get enough water in, if you, t- you know, don't get your electrolyte balance, right, you eat the wrong foods, what you can be over in five minutes. Eh? Um, so you, you, the more you do, the more you learn, you have a few failures along the way, you learn from those and then you pick yourself up and then you just keep every time you learn a little bit better. and you can still get it wrong after a hundred odd, you know, <laughs> ultra marathons you can still <laughs> go and get it wrong because you you didn't you just didn't follow some of the rules because there's a lot to well, think yeah. about you know? or sometimes you get thrown a curveball right yeah. i mean that happens too yep absolutely so, 
You mentioned the more holistic training now. What do you mean when you say that? So we, we base our training, and I know you guys are, you know, awesome trainers too, and you probably get this, that, that running isn't just about collecting miles, which, you know, uh, a lot of people think it is. It, it's about strength training. It's about mobility training. It's about mindset training as well as the running miles that you do. And, of course, then your running needs to be broken down and cyclic in its approach. Um, and, you know, what I find is that trying to keep people fundamentally healthy while running is a, is a high priority for me because when I was doing my crazy stuff, I was not healthy. There's a difference between fitness and health. I was puffy, I was overweight, believe it or not, because my body was in this sort of, sort of emergency condition of being metabolically super efficient. So I wasn't, it was used to running long miles. So what it did is, and this really came apparent for me when I ran through New Zealand, I ran through New Zealand for charity, which is 2,250 Ks in 42 days. So I was running like 500 Ks a week and I was putting on weight hmm. and I was like, hang on a minute, what the hell's going on here? I'm burning like, you know, in excess of 10,000 calories a day. Why the heck am I getting fatter? And of course, now I understand because I studied epigenetics and I've studied um, what happens to the body when it goes into a fight and flight state. Um, my hormones were completely out of balance. I was holding a lot of fluid. I was holding every bit of food and storing it as fat because my body was going, she's not going to stop running. We've got to store everything. Crisis. <laughs> Yeah, and, and 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 I was so pissed off to be fair, you know, like when you're running 500 k's a week, you think you'd be able to eat anything and you'll be right, okay? You know, it's funny. <laughs> Girls out there running, you know, I, um, doing chronic cardio, long distance running training is probably not the most efficient way if weight loss is your goal. Okay? <laughs> <For sure. laughs> it's not that. It'll help if you're doing medium <laughs> amounts, but when you get to the stupid amounts, it can actually go the other way. Um, which did for me. And so that was uh, an eye-opener of the negative sides of it, you know, and then I was having kidney problems, hormonal problems, period problems, you know, like all these sort of fertility problems, all these sort of problems that were knock-on effects of having, yes, I was fit, I could run a couple of hundred Ks at a time if I had to, but on the other hand, I was actually unhealthy. And um, I had to sort of break that down and try and understand the difference between performance and and health and longevity and it's one of the reasons why now i'm not doing the super super long distance stuff anymore because while i could do it you know uh, i could train for, train up for it and still be doing it at my age there's no problem with that but i'd done some damage because i'd done it for so so many years and it was also not going to be conducive to my longevity and to my optimal performance or my optimal health so for me yeah. now, it's about those things. I'm still really fit, but fit in a different way. And I'm healthier than I was. And so that's a bit of a mind shift day eh, for someone who's just done, you know, go hard or go home. And when I'm coaching people, you, we, we, you get, especially women, I find, they're so hard on themselves. They are always overtraining. They are always pushing and they want to be the toughest, strongest, coolest. They're usually high powered career women. They've got three kids and they're trying to run ultra marathons at the same time. And the best thing I can do is actually dial back their training, you know, and getting them to do some yoga and some, some do some deep breathing and meditation. And then they'll get the performance jumps 
And then they'll feel healthier and they'll actually get happier because a lot of the time people are pushing up against the limits of stress. You know, like a, a, if you picture a bucket of stress and you, you're doing all the sport, plus you've got all these other things going on in your life, kids and careers and so on, financial stuff, whatever stuff, relationship stuff, you're putting it in the same bucket as your, your training and it can overflow and that's when you start to have health issues. So keeping things, um, keeping things um, for the want of a better word, in balance so that you're not overflowing that bucket and you're keeping yourself really healthy. Um, and individual athletes are, you know, very often hard-charging, high-achieving type people with huge amounts of discipline. And it's not actually discipline that they're lacking. It's knowing when to dial it back. It's knowing that recovery is as important as your run, that you're not going to get the benefit out of that big, long training run you just did if you're not sleeping properly at night and not eating properly, and not hydrating properly, and if you're not happy. Um, so it's understanding that whole person and, and then basing your system and your training system around that. The balance is key. Yeah. Was there, was there a particular part of that balance equation that you had to really work on or struggle with? Yeah, I still struggle with it, you know, and that's mm. the mental side of it, you know, like um, you just, uh, you know, type A personality, <laughs> charge hard, go go hard, go home type mentality. And, and over and over again, I now have to like pull myself back and go, hang on a minute. You had a really shitty sleep last night. Going out and smashing yourself is probably not the good thing today. Go and do a yoga session. And that's a hard sell for someone like me. But I've learned over the years and I've had a really good coach who's now my business partner and stuff who's, you know, in my ear, when he can see me spinning out of control, you know, when he can see that I'm just going, go hard, go hard, you know, we've got to go harder, longer, you know, better, stronger, because you, and, and there comes a time too, when you're like, you know, I'm 51 now, and you have to change your approach, what you got away with as a 20 year old, as a 25 year old, you, you, not that when you're over 50, you are not capable of doing extreme amazing things but you have to do it in a different with a different lens and a different approach otherwise you will tip things out of balance and end up you know quite unhealthy you know yeah. as well plus the other part of it is if you've been doing those mileage those miles for 25 years you've got the aerobic foundation part of it down and so yeah. it's really the other pieces that become more important parts of the equation. I just turned 40 last year myself. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm learning these things myself as I, as I get into yeah. my master's years. So <laughs> I want to talk about to come Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Lisa, yeah. I believe it. Absolutely. I had my best performances, you know, 45 onwards, you know, like I, I, I really did. Yeah. About 44, 45 is when I hit my stride, I think. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they say statistically 48 is when your endurance is peaking. And I think now with all the information that we have, because I'm, you know, I'm a full blown biohacker, um, you know, uh, yeah. actually that's even later now because we really? have this knowledge that we have. And, you know, if we keep us, if we look after our bodies, um, then we can be doing crazy things in our 70s and 80s. I don't think, I think, you yeah. know, the future's looking bright for, you know, like someone like you who's only just turned 40 has got the best ahead. Like. <laughs> I love it. 
That's encouraging. So, so give us a little bit on biohacking because then I want to talk about your new book. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what's, what's, what's the skinny on that? Give us a little teaser. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you about the book first, because this is why I ended up going down this trail. So four years ago, my mum, who's been the most incredible, amazing mum, always supporting me, always caring for me, just incredible lady. She had a massive aneurysm and was left with major brain damage at age 74. Um, they didn't think she would survive. And she was in and out of coma for, for weeks in hospital. And by some miracle, she did survive. They, they had brilliant surgeons who did a great, great job. Um, managed to save her life but when she came out of the coma she had basically no higher functions she had uh, a little bit over a vegetative state so she had a couple of words but she had no control over her body she had no uh, memory of who or what she was she was like a baby with no software installed is the best way to describe it and it was horrific you know when you love somebody and you see them like this state and we were told look she's 74 you know, she's never, ever going to do anything. The brain damage is so massive. I mean, she couldn't even sit or find her, you know, mouth to put food in it or um, anything, or push a button or understand any of the most basic things. And at that time is when I actually stopped doing the, the long distance running for obvious reasons. I had to focus fully on her. And they told me we had to put her in a level uh, hospital level care rest home facility and she was 24-7 around the care, around the clock care for two people and that we would never, ever cope with her at home. And I just went, no, that's not happening. And I've been told my entire life that you can't do stuff and they've always been wrong. And I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to go all in on this rehabilitation. I'm going to get my mum back or I'm going to die trying. That was my attitude because, you know, when, and when, when love is the motivating factor, you'll pull out all the stops. Man. And so I started into this deep dive into the world of science and brain rehabilitation and what could I possibly do for my mum. And I picked up already things in the hospital that, uh, I'd done a lot of stuff at altitude too in the Himalayas and I'd, I'd, I'd seen the effects of altitude on my body, um, ended up with my own brain injury from um, having not enough oxygen uh, at altitude um, and saw a lot of the things that was happening in my mum's brain as being related to oxygen deficit. And so originally I, I came up with the, the hypothesis that she was uh, had sleep apnea, which is when you stop breathing at night. And this was also adding to the problem that she was not getting enough. Uh, the hospital wouldn't let me do any tests. They said, that's rubbish. Um, so I, I brought in an outside consultant and we did a test anyway against the rules of the hospital and came back severe sleep apnea that she was chain stoke breathing, that she was actually on her way out, right? She was um, stopping breathing hundreds of times a night. So... This was exacerbating because the part of her brain that controlled that was damaged. And so this was the first win for me, where I first think they, they, they stuck a CPAP machine, which is a machine that pushes air into your airways when you're asleep and keeps you breathing. <clears throat> and so I did uh, that, and that was my first win. And when I started to see tiny bits of improvement in her, and, you know, as she got on this machine. And then I started to think, what else can oxygen do? And I came across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is what they've used in the dive industries traditionally for the bends when divers have accidents at, at depth and they put them in these chambers to bring them back up slowly. But what they found was that if you put someone on, on oxygen and take them down to the equivalent of being underwater, you're not actually underwater, you're in a chamber, but you're under more pressure. And what that does is it hyper-oxygenates the body. 
And when you do this, it compresses the oxygen molecules because you're under pressure, right? And so that those oxygen molecules can dissolve into the plasma of the blood and that can then pass through the blood-brain barrier and get to the small capillaries and the small uh, the neurons and stuff that are that are not functioning properly in the brain. So in the when you have brain damage, typically you'll have areas of the brain that are dead and you can't do anything about those. But what around the dead tissue is areas that are alive but they're not functioning. And if you can get enough oxygen to them, um, and hyperbaric oxygen therapy can do that, it can also um, attack the inflammation in the brain or in the body in general. It uh, produces more stem cells. It does all these amazing things, right? It causes all these epigenetic shifts. So, and this is not widely known. So if anybody out there is listening who's got a brain injury or someone with, um, in fact, there's so many things that hyperbaric is useful for from, you know, cancers through to, um, to brain injury, um, then look into it because I did this with mum. I went to a dive company and I asked them if I could use their hyperbaric chamber and I gave them the research and they said, yep, you can do it. Um, sign a legal waiver to take full responsibility. So the day I got her out of the hospital, I took her straight down to this big commercial factory. We stuck her on a forklift and we stuck her in this big chamber. That was the only way to get her in, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone thought I was absolutely nuts. After 33 treatments there, these guys were amazing. Um, two hours a day, roughly in this chamber and after 33 treatments we lost our access to the chamber but my mum started to respond she started to wake up she started to have a couple of words she had a little bit of tiny bit of memory and she's like this is working okay what else can I do so then I mortgaged the house I bought my own hyperbaric chamber I installed it in her house and I started to put her through these sessions five days a week and then I started studying functional neurology, which is the study of eyes and eye tracking and, and how to get more balance in the whole vestibular system. I studied um, diet and ended up putting on a basically a keto diet I had um, with a lot more vegetables than a keto, but very low carb because your brain can't uptake glucose when you've got a brain injury very well. So I did everything, physio, functional neurology, epigenetics, functional genomics. I studied all these areas of science and just went full in. So I ate our program every day for the first three years of her rehabilitation. Um, and my mum, now to cut a very long story short, and this is the, the book that I've just produced on yeah. it, I would relentless. Yeah. So a mother and daughter defied the odds. And there were two lovely brothers and a dad in behind that as well. Um, is, is, is her comeback journey and all of the things that we were up against in the medical system, all the, the ageism, the, 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 the limiting beliefs, the, the, the big pharma, um, the, the way the system works, and then looking at all the biohacking stuff, how to look outside the box, how to research what the therapies were that I did, um, all this sort of information. But most of all, it's a mindset book. It's about taking on a challenge that's so massive that you don't even know where to start and just keeping moving every day a tiny bit forward. And you would have months on end where there'll be no improvement, you know, and she, it took me a year and a half just to teach her to roll over in bed, you know, Mm. and it's thousands and thousands of hours of retraining her brain in conjunction with all this other stuff. Now, four years later, my mum is completely normal again. She's got her full driver's license, her full power of attorney. She's fully independent again. And I've got my mum back, you know. Hmm. And that is the power of this (laughs) looking outside the box. Yeah. 
That's amazing. What did you bring from your endurance training to that journey? Everything that, you know, like I've often been asked in, in my ultramarathon running career, why the hell would you do this stuff? It's painful. Yeah. It's on the limits of stupid. It's dangerous. <laughs> it's not fun. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of reasons that the average person looks at it and goes, that's just mental. Have you got some mental issues and probably, yeah, do, but, um, <laughs> the lessons that you learn from this and what you can then take from running and apply into a real world situation like this, that is the reason you do this stuff. That is why we push outside our comfort zone and do stuff that we don't want to do and take on massive challenges and scare the crap out of ourselves regularly. Because when the shit hits really hits the fan and you are needed needed to do something really hard, really difficult, you have a much better chance because you have that mental resilience, you have that discipline, you have that belief that you can achieve things that even though people are telling you you can't, you know, and you've seen it and you've experienced it in the sporting realm and then you take that one for one and you put it into your corporate career, you put it into a rehab journey, you put it into your business development and you'll find that you can fight through a heck of a lot more than the person who's never ever done anything like this because you've learned so much about who you are under pressure and who you are when the going is tough and when the chips are down. You learn to keep putting one foot in front of the other and you learn to keep fighting and you learn not to listen to the naysayers and you learn to go and research and find great coaches and good mentors and all of this sort of stuff. And, and those are lessons that will see you right through everything in life, I think. Oh, you're preaching to me, Lisa. I think we're kindred spirits on that. I was just yeah. actually talking about this in my last episode of, of running being a pathway to truth, especially to truth about yourself. And, and I was challenging people to think about those anxious moments, those fearful moments, those moments where you think you can't, or those moments where you don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes you stand on a start line and you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I stepping into this suffering? Every time. But, <laughs> but then, but then when you get into it, you learn those things that become formative, transformative and formative to you as a human that extend well beyond the running. And then that's where the magic is. And so I was trying to so encourage people to reflect on that and then use it as motivation to want to seek out those moments to go yeah. to where the hard stuff is, because that's where you have the good, the good stuff. That's where you get the wins from. That's what changes you, shapes you, forms you. And this is, you know, like when we, when we, I mean, just going back to mum for, for a minute, you know, I got a lot of criticism from people and still do sometimes. Why are you pushing her so hard? Because this program that I put her through every day was painful. It was torturous. It was hardcore. The, why can't she just have a day off? Why can't she eat that piece of cake? Why can't, you know, come on, it's Christmas day. And nah, like I'm absolute like, you, nah, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And I get a lot of criticism for that, but not so much anymore because they see the result of what comes out of that attitude and, and what, what comes out of that discipline. When, when we take, and this is, I think, really important for, uh, I love our elderly population. I think, you know, they have their wisdom and we should be treasuring them and respecting them and helping them live full lives. When I ran through New Zealand and I was doing that um, massive big run, I had this challenge that I was running in schools, right, for kids to come and do, they had to, 
they had to run every day with me and collect their kilometers and raise money for charity, right? And I had also these old folks' homes, these rest homes, who also joined in the challenge. And I had 95-year-olds and 90-year-olds doing their own personal challenge with me as I ran through the country. And for some of them, it was going around 10 times in their wheelchair, you know, or it was walking along the hallway twice, you know, along the rail or whatever the challenge was for them. But what I saw when I met these people and they came out to meet with me and they were pushed in their wheelchairs as I ran into town and the people, the caregivers said, they'd never seen them so happy because they had a mission and every day they had a job to do and they had a goal to set that they had to achieve that day. And humans need pushing. We don't need comfort. We don't need to be having it easy and making things easy. And so for someone with a disability, like, you know, yesterday I'm in the park, I'm, I'm teaching mum to walk on really difficult trails at the moment. And we're having to go down these really steep steps and I'm not letting her hold my hand to go down, right? I'm, tr I'm trying to teach her to do it. I'm there, I'm ready to grab her if she falls, but I'm, I'm you know, making her do it. And this lovely gentleman comes up and says, well, can I help you? I, you know, like she, she, she shouldn't be doing that on her own. And I said, oh, thank you so much for caring. But I'm actually teaching her to walk down the steps and, and doing this. Oh, but it, isn't it dangerous? You know, and he was really worried, you know, and, and which is lovely, which is lovely. Don't get me wrong. But when you enable people, when, when you do everything for them and when you don't let them struggle, and, and fight to achieve something then especially in a rehab journey like that they never learn that movement pattern and they will never ever come back and though what's really hard to watch someone struggling to try and find how to operate that muscle to stand up and you could just lift them and help them up you're actually doing them a disservice when you do that because you you you're teaching them to be helpless and I want to teach people, no, you can fight. You will find a way. Come on, keep going. And you're encouraging them. You're pushing them along. And I think all of us need that. And we need it right throughout our lives, whether we're five years old or 105. We need challenges. I was on a, a webinar last night um, with Milan Soman. He's a Bollywood actor in India. And he runs a thing called the Pinkathon over there, which is for women in India running. And he said, they've got this. 105 year old lady who takes part in this challenges uh, every year and she's got the world record and the shot put and the javelin and the 100 meter and the 200 meters and she's been doing it since she was 93 years old she started running at 92 and she's 105 <laughs> you know that is that is just gold that is just beautiful you know we we all yeah. need these challenges well, especially that is true. I would assume if you stop using it, if you stop doing it, then you lose it. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to keep challenging, keep pressing the yeah. envelope. Yep. And just giving people challenges, you know, no matter what age they are, because when you just stick them in a corner and make them comfortable, then that's the beginning of the end for me, you know, and, and, and we as humans too, we need to push as younger ones. We need to, you know, pushing our boundaries, you know, like, I went surfing the other day and I haven't been out for two years and I'm like debating with myself. Oh my God, I went to the gym. You said, I've got sore arms. I shouldn't really go out. It's really cold. <laughs> uh, I'm scared. The waves are too big. I've got every excuse under the sun. And then I was like, come on, you're being a whip, you know, and I pulled myself together and I put my wetsuit on and I went out and I was like, woohoo. I didn't surf very well, but woohoo. You know, I, <laughs> I overcame myself. And we have to yeah. do that all of us all the time. It's not just something you do once and then you've got it. 
unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So I've got to wrap, Lisa, but give yeah. us a little bit on where we can get your books if we want to check it out, Relentless being your latest. Yeah, uh, um, um, so if you've got the video, so these are the three. I've got Running Hot, um, which is my first book, and Running to Extremes and Relentless. Um, so the first two, uh, the adventures running, and the third one is with mum. My website is just lisatamati.com. I'd love people to come and... Um, uh, check that out. Uh, we do, you know, epigenetics and we do run coaching like you do, so we won't go into that. But um, what I would love people to do is come and listen to Chris, who's going to be on my podcast. Because <laughs> I've got a podcast too <laughs> called Pushing the Limits. Yeah. <laughs> come and subscribe over there um, and learn some more great sort of, because I just love hanging out with people like you, doing great things in the world. And, you know, so my show is called Pushing the Limits. So come and check that out uh, on iTunes and all the sort of places or come out to my website at lisatamati.com. Yeah, and you can get all the books on Amazon as well. Yeah. So. This has been awesome, Lisa. You're quite the inspiration. I look forward to continuing the conversation on your podcast. Yeah, this me was going to be a, quite a fun exchange. But we really, really thank you for joining me and telling your story. Oh, thank you. And I really want to thank Sanjay, our mutual friend, friend uh, and filmmaker. He's a bit of a legend. So thanks very much, Sanjay, <laughs> for introducing uh, me to cool people. I really appreciate it. There you go. Lisa Tomati, everyone. Her book, Relentless, just came out, and I will link to the links to that book as well as her other books, Running Hot and Running to Extremes, in the show notes, so check that out. Thanks to Lisa for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll wrap this episode here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon.